Hello, hello, happy Good Friday. Good morning, Theo 102. Happy Friday. Is anyone happy that it's Friday? I am. We made anyone it. Anyone at all? <laughs> One more week. Is anyone in a good mood? No one's in a good mood. Welcome One to person. He's in Yay. a good mood. He's got a Disneyland sweatshirt. Of course he's in a good mood. You can't be. Okay? Did he's you go going already? to Disneyland. You we can't be in a bad mood with a sweatshirt like that. We want to definitely welcome any guests who might be in here straggling with us for a Bruin preview and, and the scholarship competition. Scholarship Can we give a hand for our guests? Yay, We don't welcome. know where you are. Welcome to Theo 102, which, uh, and welcome to Friday of Theo 102. And today is the day when we turn one of the big ideas that we've been thinking about on Monday around and around in our heads, along with a great conversation. And uh, we are looking forward to our conversation partners here. But first, I think you had an announcement about a particular need, a volunteer thing that we might be able to contribute oh, to. Oh, no, I was, well, yeah, I was telling you right before. <laughs> I got an email. They were asking me to, 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 to volunteer chaperone for the Sadie Hawkins dance. And I was thinking, what if we both did it? Would that ruin the dance or make the dance awesome? I had a lot of thought follow-up questions yeah. about that. Like, yeah. there are chaperones? At dance? Well, you know, like, leave room for the Holy Ghost right, kind of stuff. Right, right. Okay, yeah, You know, yeah. like... What do you think you're doing? <laughs> what do you think you're doing back there? You know, that kind of thing. I don't we know. do that enough already is that what you here. Do? Yeah. So I was just sort of like, I'm that's not a role, sure. That's a role I don't think yeah. I want to I want We could bring on. our 1990s dance moves. I think that would be welcome. Yep. Yeah. Well, just kidding. Maybe another time. I'm a terrible dancer. Okay, anyway, so Sadie Hawkins, whatever that is, we want to hear about it. You let us know. Okay, so today we are having a debate about the atonement, which fits into our lectures about the resurrection. So basically, as you recall, we talked a lot about the history of the resurrection in the form of the person Jesus. And then this Monday lecture was about the atonement, which is related to the meaning of the resurrection. So he is risen. That is awesome. What does the resurrection mean? What does it accomplish theologically in the lives of believers? Dr. Garcia taught us about that. And we want to remind everyone of a point Dr. Garcia made, something that both of our debaters today definitely agree on, which is that Christians are saved by the atonement, not by theories about the atonement, okay? So um, we want to make it clear, as, as we did last time for our debates, that we see these debates as being debates that Christians can legitimately have with each other and still be Christians. In all things unity, unified in the creed and on, in core beliefs. In some contested things, non-essentials, diversity. diversity. Yes. So in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, and in all things... Love, charity. Love yes. and charity. So we're yes. going to be showing... Which reminds me, I, so I spoke to some students. I wonder what you think about this, Dr. Payne. Okay. I, was, I was talking just with a few students, like a focus group, like, hey, we did a debate. Let's just say that that was like a 5 out of 10 intensity. How intense do you want it numerically? Can you guess what they said? Well, it'd have to be like 11. Like 11 out of 10. Like blood, right. you know? And I, so I don't know. <laughs> my, my initial reaction to that is like, I get... I get that and like how sometimes learning can actually occur better when the opinions are sharper and so on but I don't know I wondered if that's really the vibe that we want 11 out of 10 conflict what do you what do you think well I think we want to definitely show that there's distinction and Christians feel strongly about distinction but I think one way that we hope to be not worldly so we hope to be holy if you will use a, a, a Christian word for that is we don't want to be like the kinds of conversations that we often hear in the in the regular world where people just seem to yell 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 and more yelling at each other and pick that, your side yeah your claim, so we want to show end. you can definitely disagree you can have strong disagreements and you can also do it with christian love so yes 
Yes, we will have intense discussions, and also we will be caring yeah. toward each other. It's not even everybody's communication style either. I mean, I, That's true. I do recognize, though, like the entertainment value of that. But we'll see if our speakers today can amp it up in love and in charity. By the way, I want to introduce our, I'm gonna introduce our speakers now so we kind of get that out of the way. And if there's anything further we can do. Of course, in this corner, we have our lecturer from Monday, Dr. Javier Dr. Garcia. Her Javier Garcia. Dr. Javier Garcia is going to pitch to you a theory of the atonement that he wants you to believe in, and we're gonna leave it up to him to tell you exactly what that is. His opponent in the other corner, Dr. Nijay Gupta. Welcome, Dr. Gupta. You remember Dr. Gupta. Dr. Gupta has different ideas about the atonement from Dr. Garcia, and we're gonna hear all about those. And, last but not least, sitting in the chair of honor in the center of the debaters to keep them from physically attacking each other if necessary, <laughs> Pastor Tony Nguyen from Old Town Church. Uh, let's give him a hand. Yay, Pastor Tony is new to us, but you're gonna love him. And he's quite the theologian uh, in his own right, so we're super happy that he's with us. Pastor and Tony, welcome, so happy. Love those shoes, by the way, it's, it's perfect. It's <laughs> we wanna we remind you really quickly of the debate. Uh, they're not really rules, but guidelines that we've established, which is the fact that every uh, position that you will hear represented is a, considered to be a very traditionally Christian position. Um, so that is the unity that you will see, but they will also, there will be some distinctions. So that's something that just to keep in mind, um, and that we're not thinking of this in terms of winners and losers, although you may certainly be more convinced of a position uh, one way or another. Um, and then was there another rule I forget? Nah, let's just stick with those two. Yeah, let's go with that. I'll moderate this and kind of keep us going on track, and we're going to turn to Pastor Tony for a kind of commentary on it at a key point. And then, of course, as always, we're going to flip this back open to you, so get your questions wet, ready, written on paper, um, or however the people who are doing the mics want you to do that. And they can come up and maybe they already have the mic. I don't know what they're doing back there, but they're back there, okay? Hey, can we say the creed? I think I have it memorized up to where we are. Let's, let's give it a shot. Yeah. I, believe I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Great job. Let's do this debate. Let's do this. All right, we're gonna have the dueling podiums today. First up, Dr. Javier Garcia is gonna have seven minutes. Pastor Tony's got the timeout. He's got a pink sheet, which he's gonna wave when there's one minute left if needed. And then he's gonna wave it again at the end and you, you, you got to obey Pastor Tony or else, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's just the way this is. Dr. Javier Garcia, the floor is yours. Penal substitution is the best understanding of the atonement and I'm going to argue why in the next seven minutes. First, I want to talk about why penal substitutionary atonement is biblical. The first thing to say is the seriousness of sin. There are five main terms in the New Testament to describe sin that are both passive and active. Some describe sin as missing the target or failure to attain a goal. The others uh, talk about unrighteousness and iniquity. Others, evil. And so these speak to an inner corruption in, um, in human beings. But the more active terms, parabasis, which is trespass or transgression, 
or stepping over a boundary, and anomia means lawlessness, a total disregard for the law and violation of a known law. So what I want to make sure you understand is that sin in the Bible is not casual. It is lawlessness and rebelliousness against God that is deep-seated in our hearts. And Paul talks about this uh, in Romans, saying that we are in basic hostility towards God because of our godlessness. And so you can also see this in the psalmist who says, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. So most, all of our sins are, even though they're directed against other people, uh, they are ultimately against God. So, with all this in mind, we understand sin as essentially separating us from God and placing us in total hostility against Him. So if you think sin is not a big deal, the Bible would disagree with you. Next, the language of wrath. Throughout Scripture, sin arouses the wrath of God and His punishment in response. It should be said that God's response in punishment is often uh, tied with a type of loving uh, mercy as well. So if you think of Adam and Eve, you might think of that as the first sin. They broke the commandment to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God punished the serpent, Eve, and Adam, if you remember uh, in these curses in the, in the beginning of Scripture. And so they are also driven out of the Garden of Eden. And you can say that this is merciful because he doesn't kill them right away, but actually takes them out of the garden. Now, when the world is full of corruption, God is sorry that he made man and decides to blot out man, only having Noah and his family as survivors. That's Genesis 6. We also see a similar pattern of anger in Exodus. Moses has to convince God not to destroy his people after the golden calf when the Bible says in Exodus 32 that God was hot with anger against his people. And so when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but that he will by no means clear the guilty. So we can already see this pattern in the very beginning of Scripture, uh, but this also is continued in uh, the tradition of the prophets. Just read the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 5 says, They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So if you take the prophetic tradition seriously, God's anger is aroused by sin. And we also see this in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men by their unrighteousness who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So penal substitution depends on the idea of this, uh, that sin requires propitiation. God's wrath needs to be appeased in order to deal with sin. Now, thankfully, in the logic of uh, sacrifice, the Old Testament also talks about a substitute. Now, if you think about Leviticus especially, there is a sacrificial lamb uh, on which sin is put as a substitute for the sins of the people. So, uh, think of Abraham, for example. When he's going to sacrifice Isaac, his son, God provides a ram in his stead. And so, this blood sacrifice communicates to us that the substitute animal was killed in recognition that the penalty of sin was death, and that blood was sprinkled, and the offerer's life was spared because of that exchange. Now, the question becomes, who is the substitute? 
Uh, as I talked about on Monday, Isaiah 53 is a very, very good text to go to say that Christ is this sacrificial lamb, this substitute, this scapegoat who will appease the wrath of God that we deserve as sinners. So Romans 5.8, for example, says, While we, will, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us on behalf of us. And Isaiah 53 talks about how Christ was um, an innocent lamb, and the early church really uh, focused on Isaiah 53 to prove that Christ was this uh, substitutionary lamb, that he was crushed for our iniquities, etc. And you can also see in Acts 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, Philip, the apostle, explains to him in reference to Isaiah 53 who God is and who Jesus is and the good news of Jesus. So this is a kind of explicit reference uh, to Christ. I have a minute and a half, so I'd also like to talk about justification and righteousness. Um, basically, the law is so serious and we have violated it to such an extent that we need someone who will give us perfect righteousness because we can never live up to the righteousness that the law requires. This is what Paul's letter uh, depends on in Romans 1, where Paul argues that all have fallen short of the glory of God and of his law. And so, the Bible says uh, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 about Jesus, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, my final point is that in order for us to be saved, we need a perfect righteousness and to be considered righteous, and the only way to do this is through Christ, who comes in our place, pays the price that we uh, deserve as sinners, and then we are righteous by faith in believing in him. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Garcia. Now up, Dr. Nijay Gupta, seven minutes. The gentleman on my right is a formidable opponent, so we're going to get serious. <laughs> That's right. Come on. All right. All right, don't waste my time. All right. My view is called Union with Christ. Union with Christ. What is the problem? According to the Bible, the problem is sin. Sin has corrupted the human person. It's broken the image of God in us and twisted our desires and behaviors. We do not uh, do what we know we should do, and what we do is wrong. Look at Romans 3. It reminds us that we are corrupted and therefore sin. The problem of sin is the corruption of the person to become broken and unrighteous, affecting our ability to know God, worship Him, and live rightly in the world as agents of God. The Bible talks about us as in Adam, conformed to the corrupt person of Adam. Sometimes the Bible talks about this as the old person or old man. So what is the solution? What is the nature of atonement? The solution is the restoration of that broken image to wholeness that cannot be done from the outside, but must be done from within us, from the inside. Christ creates a new pattern of humanity that changes us, and we conform to a new person, a new Adam 
in Christ. So a key text for this, I appeal to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You probably have heard this before. If anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Over a hundred times, Paul uses the language of in Christ. He's pointing to a new sphere of existence that is able to transform us. We can also look to Romans chapter 6, which offers a pattern of how we come to have this new life by sharing in the burial of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the new life of Jesus. Paul says, do, not, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death. So, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. We might no longer be enslaved to sin. The gentleman on my right wants to convince you that the answer is substitution. But with substitution, you have essentially an exchange. You have that old image of the criminal on death row that, that should deserve death and the innocent person that takes their place. And in that model, an essentially substitutional model, you have a criminal go free and you have an innocent person condemned to death and they never touch places. They substitute. The whole idea of a substitute is the exchange of places but actually, the Bible doesn't talk about Christ dying for us. It talks about us dying with Christ. Another way to think about this formulation is using the language of theosis. Theosis is often misunderstood as us becoming gods. So I want to clarify what theosis means because I feel like this is one version of union with Christ. Salvation and transformation are possible in Christ because we become like Christ, the Son of God, and we enter into living communion with God, able to share by God's grace the divine life. An early theologian named Irenaeus said it this way, Our Lord Jesus became what we are, that he himself might bring us to be even what he is himself. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, We with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of, degree of glory to another. This happens through being united with Christ. One of my friends, his name's Ben Blackwell, he teaches at Houston Baptist University. He explains the image of theosis as if you have this kiln or fire, and then you put a sword into the fire, the blade of the sword, and, and, the, and, and the blade of that sword becomes uh, heated by that fire and actually takes on the, the thermal properties of that heat. He says it this way, The iron remains what it is by nature, we are human, but its attributes are transformed through participation in the fire. It remains iron and cuts as a sword, but it now glows red and burns. This metaphor illustrates theosis. Just as the iron does not cease to be iron, humans do not cease to be human. But by participating in the fire, the iron sword is transformed, becoming like the fire. It too becomes hot and glows. Similarly, in the process of theosis or deification, believers are united to God and become like Him, experiencing His divine life. 
and holiness. We see this, for example, in John chapter 15 with the image of the vine and the branches. I am the true vine. My father is the vine grower. He removes every branch of me that bears no fruit. You have been cleansed by the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me or live in me or become one with me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. In summary, we can appeal to Romans chapter 8, which Union with Christ focuses on dealing with the problem of sin by becoming one with Christ in his burial, in his death, and in his resurrection and new life. Paul says, for those that he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gupta. Let's get the scarf and the hat up there at the podiums. Don't forget the beard. <laughs> For five, yes, and the beard. The scarf and the beard versus the hat. For five minutes of totally unstructured smackdown time. Um, I don't know, clarify what's at stake. What did you disagree with? What did you agree with? What's happening here? Five minutes, Pastor Tony's got you timed on this. Five minutes, go for it. I think an essential difference that we need to elaborate on a little bit is this difference between uh, being considered righteous and being made righteous, right? This kind of um, reckoned as righteous that we see in Romans 4, right? So Paul argues in Romans 4 that Abraham was considered righteous before he was told to be circumcised in the covenant. So he's talking about Genesis 12, when God first appears to Abraham and tells him, uh, I'm going to do all these things for you. And Abraham says, uh, yes, okay, I believe. What, 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 must, what must I do? So already in Romans 4, according to Paul, it is that being reckoned righteous, which is most important out of all things. And so um, I'd also like to add, we are Barabbas, right? In the Gospels, there's this whole uh, moment where um, the people are, are yelling, crucify him, crucify him to Jesus. And Pilate says, no, 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 I'll give you Barabbas, who's a murderer, instead. And um, the people say, no, 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 we're going to take Christ. So that is an image of the exchange. We are Barabbas, and Christ dies in our stead. So we are deserving to die, but instead, uh, this exchange is given. We are uh, uh, given freedom and life, and Christ takes on. So I'd like you to respond to those two things, the reckoning and Barabbas right. exchange. Uh, on the reckoning, um, the gentleman to my right wants you to think. Apparently, I don't have a name. <laughs> What's that about? Um, Yes, the, the language of logizomai, reckoning, is used in Scripture, but my, I guess a question I'd want to raise is to what end? What kind of people does God want in the end? Does he want people who wear the label of righteous or people who are actually righteous? He actually turns the table on this, Paul does, in Romans chapter 2, where you have these Gentiles coming into the church and you have Jew, Jewish Christians who maybe don't like the kind of change of power, uh, towards a Gentile church, to the Gentile believers. And what does Paul say? He says, who are the kind of people who will, who will uh, have, have the glory of God? Is it not those who are doing good? And also, we talk a lot about justification, justification by faith. Uh, one of the criticisms of Luther, I think even Bonhoeffer criticized Luther, Luther for this, is it doesn't necessarily lead to a Christian ethic. Why be good if I can just wear this hat that says justified? So the way I see it, the way it's been explained to me is it's like 
I was selected out of just a random group to play for the Timbers, right? We all wear the same jersey, but now I have to step up. And the question is, in a, in a justification-oriented, substitution-oriented theology, you have so many people that never step up, that never grow in righteousness or seek that because they can just wear the label of righteousness and that's it. I, I feel like that's a major critique. What was the second? Uh, Barabbas. Okay. John, am I right? He likes to make assertions that actually aren't stated in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we are Barabbas or that we're the crowds. We can make the, and the same thing goes for substitution. Actually, the mechanism of sacrifice is not explained in Scripture. I, I feel like there were some logical leaps there to say this is how it works. In fact, substitution is not by itself introduced as a concept in Scripture. You have a preposition. He used some Greek there, but I actually teach Greek. <laughs> he used yeah, and I'm actually a theologian, so, you know, it's a kind used, of... This is my time, sir. This is my time. I didn't cede my time to you. He, used a, he, he didn't talk about the preposition huper, which can mean substitute, but often it means for the sake of. Christ didn't die in our place. He died for our sake, and that distinction needs to be recognized. And I would say Hooper also is hyper-debated, okay? So there are two sides to that story. Um, you, notice how I use a pun That's as noted, a weapon. sir. There. That's noted. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I'd like to say uh, when it comes to declaring righteous, God's word is powerful. As we know, God created out of nothing, and he speaks us into existence. So when he declares us righteous, it would be a misunderstanding to think that that is an empty word. Actually, when God declares us righteous because of what Christ has done for us, as in 2 Corinthians, uh, uh, that verse that I read, he becomes our righteousness. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in that declaration, we are actually made righteous because we're considered righteous. So it's not an empty word, unless, of course, you want to imply that when God considers us righteous, he's lying. Also, now I have uh, 10 seconds. I would like a chance to for yes, a rebuttal. Okay, go for it. Go for I would it. like a chance for a rebuttal. You have four seconds. Okay. <laughs> Wrong. In every single part of Scripture, even within Paul, every time that judgment is brought up, it is always related to the judgment of works. Humans are never judged on the basis of faith or status. How would you explain that? But we don't, we're out of time, so you can't answer. <laughs> Debaters, debaters, well done. Have a seat. We're going to come back to you. You're not done totally yet, but have a seat. Yes. Pastor oh, Tony, Pastor Tony, no, you've been taking it all. That in, was man. good. You're th a youth pastor. We need you to bring right. this. We need you to youth pastor for us a little bit here. Like, bring this down to earth. Like, I, does, I think it's always matter? dangerous to hand um, a youth pastor a mic because we might be in here for a while. Um, give us a captive good, audience. Give us a, good, yeah. give us a good three or four minutes. Like, what do you totally. think Totally. So, it, if I had to assess uh, the argumentation by who's right, I wouldn't do it by content, but, but by sheer force of will. <laughs> Man, Dr. Gupta just <laughs> laid it. I, I love the, the angst. As a millennial, I love the angst. But I think, I think as, as somebody who, who is in ministry... Not to say that Dr. Garcia and Dr. Gupta aren't in ministry, but I think for you guys, where I'd like to drive it home for us is this. It's to affirm that both um, uh, proposals of the work of Christ are valid, and I think all um, proposals of 
what the work that Jesus does for us and on our behalf is valid because it addresses a different component of who we are. I think the question that I want to drive us towards is, um, so what? What does that mean? So we know what Jesus did, and oftentimes you and I can get caught up in the mechanics of it, the, the mechanisms, the system of how it's done, why it's done, what is done, but I want to talk about the effectiveness of it and to affirm both argumentations, to say both are equally valid because they address um, different aspects of who we are. And so to sum that up, it's to say this. Um, our faith and our belief does not add to the work that God does for us. Our faith and our belief does not make God's work more effective for us. When, when it means that God saves, it means God saves, and we don't add to that. Um, it's to say that we're secure um, in the reality of God saving. And so that's, that's what I'd, I'd like to add is, is what does that mean for us that God has given us righteousness or that we're joined to Christ? Um, it means that we're secure. So that's, I think, what I want to push for us and lead us to is that both arguments are valid and they, they form a beautiful mosaic, but it's that we are saved. That's what I'd like to land us on. Thanks for that, Pastor Tony. Uh, we'll come back to you and to the debaters here, but now it's your turn, class. Do you have questions about this? Do you have thoughts? Hands are raised. Not only is a hand raised there, but multiple people are pointing to the person with the hand raised. You can also write questions down and um, we'll go from here. Say your first name, not your last name, because then I have to bleep it out in the recording and what your question is. Go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Isaac Bleep. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to bleep that. Maybe that's your last name. I, no, I don't know. Uh, and Dr. Gupta, you mentioned that um, there wasn't any biblical proof for penal substitution. Uh, and this morning I was reading in Hebrews 9. And when you mentioned that, starting in verse 11, this came to mind. Uh, but when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greatness, a greater and perfect tent, not through made with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. If the blood of goats and bulls, with a sprinkling of, sprinkling of ashes of a heifer, sanctifies those who have been defiled so that flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works for the living God? Is that not direct proof of penal substitution? Yeah, you, you couldn't set me up better for rebutting that because, uh, again, substitution, the, the concept of substitution expects that we don't die. And virtually in all biblical texts, it's very clear. You know, Paul says, uh, Galatians 2, 19 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I don't think even the author of Hebrews, now the early church, many of them thought it was Paul, but, but even if it's not, even look to Revelation, which fits a lot of the worldview of Hebrews, uh, talks about the saints dipping their, their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Uh, believers get themselves dirty in the blood of death. It's as if God says, listen, the bad news is you have to die. There's no way around that. I think of C.S. Lewis in the table, right? you, you got to die. It's got to happen. A sacrifice has to be made. But I have made a pathway through death to the other side, and, and not only that, the added bonus is I can kill all the bad stuff on our way through. 
And um, St. Paul says in, in Galatians, I think, 5 or 6, he says, I have been crucified of the world, and the world has been crucified to me. Uh, this is actually a powerful message. I think substitution is, is a worse doctrine, in my opinion, than participation because I need to die. I don't want to be off the hook. And so when it talks about the blood, uh, the blood atoning, uh, actually the concept of atonement itself is not substitution. Actually, the concept is covering. When we're covered in the blood, right, this is implicating our death as well. So it may be a bit of semantics, but, but that's very different than substituting where you say this thing doesn't die and this does. Dr. Garcia, you want to jump in on this? Um, I, liked, I liked what he said. <laughs> uh, I'm pointing to the student. Uh, so I guess the, the disagreement here is between expiation and propitiation, right? Does um, in atonement, is it a covering of sin or is it an appeasing of, of God's wrath that uh, is uh, evoked by sin? And so uh, there are different ways of reading scripture, but um, I would also like to say in, in res responding to Tony's point, the so what, you might think that substitution is a weakness because it means that we don't have to do anything. I mean, nobody would deny that in the scriptures we're called to do good works, okay? Can I get an amen? Like a bigger amen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so, yeah, and even Paul, who writes Romans 4, says, do good unto all, and especially to the household of faith. And he's, he remembers the poor. He's very adamant. Um, if you've seen the risen Christ, and Christ is the one who uh, preached the Sermon on the Mount, then, of course, good works are, are very important in the Christian life. What I find compelling about the substitution model is that it issues forth in gratitude in the believer. So if you're able to meditate on what Christ has done in your stead and taken on the punishment that you deserve, that should just like explode in you into a life of good works and gratitude and thanksgiving because um, you've been spared that and you can see the love of God in Christ in that substitution. So I think the exchange is actually more existentially powerful than Dr. Gupta is giving it credit for. Students, back to you. All right, we have a written question that is wondering how both of you would address children, as in like newborns who haven't had a chance to actually commit like a physical sin in a way. How would both of you address the idea of a child, like a newborn who then dies? Well, I'm, I'm sorry, can you... Um like so how she's do I, how so do you address it? So the student's yeah. asking about what about children? Like some of these theories like substitution. Okay, let's say I accept it. I yeah. repent of my sin. Or let's say participation. Um, I'm, I'm becoming like God in my dying with Christ. What about, what about a, a six-day-old infant who dies and doesn't have a chance really to do any of those things that you two were talking about in that way? Is there some different understanding that God has? Or does this require some kind of action on the part of a person and kids are just off the grid of that? How, how would you talk about that? I'll just say a couple of brief things because, you know, that's one of those perennial thorny questions that you can't answer in a brief uh, response. I think one way to re-ask that question, which I think is really good to think about, is does a baby have a sinful nature? Uh, and I don't actually have an answer to that. I think that's a really complicated and, and, and really interesting and really important question. What I will say, and I think I've said this on the panel before, is... Um, all humans are born into a, into a sinful world, a world where we sinners are, are creating more and more problems. Uh, at the same time, we have to recognize that take the most compassionate, loving person you know in the world 
and times that by a trillion, and that's God. So there's no, you know, in no way could I imagine a baby, quote unquote, going to hell. Uh, I just think that's unfathomable in the Christian tradition uh, or any reasonable ethical tradition. I can't answer the mechanism behind that theologically, but, uh, you know, we, we both would agree that the grace of God prevails in those situations. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to say for whoever wrote that question, if that's something that's personally happened to you, you know, our, our hearts go out to you and whoever has had that experience, obviously it's incredibly painful and tragic. And so just to acknowledge that. Um, but I would say, and I'm in total agreement with Dr. Gupta, uh, and I do think this substitutionary model actually speaks to God's love on our behalf. So um, it, the vicarious element of substitution, that God would do something for us uh, that we cannot do, I think also provides comfort for that situation that maybe, um, so for example, if you, uh, let's say that child were a child of a Christian family, there's a belief that that child might share in the faith of their parents vicariously, right? That there's a kind of representation that the parents have faith and so the child has faith um, through that, that vicarious faith of their parents. So I think there's some room in uh, penal substitution to actually say, hey, for the, for the children of Christians especially, um, that substitution also covers whatever original sin that child may have inherited. So I think it's hopeful in that case. Pastor, Pastor Wen, I wonder if I could go to you on this. I mean, this must come up in real life, hard pastoral situations, a question like that. Like, is this, is this something that you've thought about or dealt with in your work? I think for us in our uh, very pragmatic um, culture and society, we're very concerned about um, does it work? If it works, then it works is, is the axiom. And so I, th I think for us, um, is this the closing statement? No. Uh, yeah. So I, I think for, for us, we have to sit in that tension, and I think that's the Christian life. I don't think that the answer isn't um, the destination. The, the answer is always found in the person that journeys with us. What do we got from the audience? Another question? A hand? Okay. A thought? A rant or a rave? Go for the rave. The microphone is being passed. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi. Um, so I guess I just want to ask a question about what you had just said, Dr. Garcia, about children especially raised in Christian households. So effectively, is that meaning like if a child's raised in a completely different religion, is that their family like condemning that child? Or like what about kids who are just completely raised separate to any kind of tr Christian tradition at all? Like, what, what of them who don't really get that choice just due to lack of exposure? Fair question. Very fair question. Um, so, I think uh, you can talk about the ordinary means that God works, and so, um, you know, I think the Bible, uh, especially in Jesus' words, uh, are, is very clear that um, Jesus is the Son of God, and he makes a lot of exclusive truth claims about himself, right? Um, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, and so uh, that presents some difficulties for how we talk about other faiths. Um, and I, you know, I personally believe that there's maybe a kind of crack in the door for God's providence to work, even in those who uh, don't believe in Christ. But um, 
but it's mysterious. It's not like we have that much in the Bible saying, yeah, like, you know, you would have to basically move towards more of a universalist position. All will be saved, regardless of what you believe in. Um, or maybe you have a position where all who seek truth are actually seeking Christ. And so God would honor the, their seeking of that truth um, towards that. So really, I think at, at the foundation of your question is like, what about other religions? Um, I think, you know, God is merciful and, um, and the cross is a sign of that mercy. So uh, hopefully uh, that mercy will actually exceed our expectations. Yeah, really quick uh, to add to that. This is a difference in perspective between the two of us that uh, I, I, I don't believe in infant baptism or that anybody kind of gets, gets kind of an inclusive covenantal, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, babies don't go to heaven. It just means, uh, you know, that, that idea God has no grandchildren in the sense that everybody has to have a personal relationship with Jesus. How that happens or, you know, the degree of that, you know, who knows? Uh, but um, I, I, I don't think, you know, being a part of a Christian household, it may help to raise someone in the faith, or, but I think someone really has to confess belief themselves. Um, yeah. Pastor Tony, we've got about one or two minutes left. I wonder if you could give us a kind of closing pastoral exhortation, like where do we go from here? How do we believe? What do you think? Close it up for us. Yeah, I think with all of this, it, it has the potential or it is heady, so the encouragement for you is this. In our Venmo cash app society where transactions are instantaneous that you wouldn't um, view the work of Jesus as an instantaneous transaction but that you view his work um, and know that you can trust God because God is what he does and that's that's how we know who God is and so you don't abdicate it um, in our religious or Christian setting um, when it comes to disagreements, there's an A word that you shouldn't be. Um, it's, it's not agnostic, it's not atheistic, it's actually apathetic. And so the encouragement for you is trust God mm -hmm. and continue to care. Continue to press into the tension. It, it, it may be weighty, um, but I think that's the Christian life is we live in this weighty tension. Don't be apathetic. Wow, I feel so encouraged. Would you join me in thanking Dr. Javier Garcia? Nijay Gupta and Pastor Tony Wen for what they've offered to us today. Mm -hmm.